Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus increment 169. Our vocation is mediation. I got a feeling some people might want to know, after hearing a lot of the word of God being taught, just what is my vocation? What is our vocation as Christians? Or even what is our vocation as humankind created to bear the image of God? Well, our vocation is mediation. And we'll be considering this little noun, or rather a verb with a noun inside it, E-M-E-S-I-T-E-U-S-E-N. You'll see this in your printed version of the message. Emesitusen, which contains the word for mediator, mesites, right in the middle of it, the verbal form, and we're going to find that in our passage today. Our vocation is mediation. And we'll go to Hebrews chapter 6 for this and open in prayer. And Father, we thank you once again that you've opened a door that no man can shut, that the door remains wide open. It's an opportunity, a door of opportunity for us to unite with those who believe your word, with those who have mixed faith in your word, and perhaps with those who have become the faith heroes of history. We thank you for this opportunity, and we pray that as a result of it, we will be highly motivated to enter into and be expressive of our vocation as people who are used to mediate your gospel to a hopeless world. We thank you in Jesus' name for this opportunity. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 7, So when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he, so far we've translated this as interposed, but it's this verb, emesitusen, which means to mediate. He mediated with an oath. He mediated to guarantee the promise is the idea here. God himself mediated to guarantee the promise. The promise that he made to Abraham was of an innumerable descendants, innumerable descendants, and that all the nations would be blessed in his seed. And that seed is the singular representative of all mankind being Jesus Christ himself. So this in Hebrews 6.17, means that God himself mediated to guarantee the promise. Now, perhaps you're picking up on a little bit of my method here in teaching the homily called Hebrews. I went ahead in our last increment into 6.20. We spoke of the terms for forever and discussed the forever priesthood of our great archpriest Jesus Christ in verse 20. Now I'm back in verse 617. Why is that? Because my method is that of an ironing of a fabric. When you iron a fabric, you go over the fabric again. You go back over the area that you ironed already to get more wrinkles out of the fabric. So consider our exegesis of fabric 
consider Hebrews itself a fabric, consider our exegesis running the iron over it several times. So that's why we're back in Hebrews 6.17. So when God determined to show his unchangeable purpose, remember Amatathaton, even more clearly to the heirs of his promise or the promise he interposed with an oath. He mediated to guarantee the promise. The verb used here is emesitusin, emesitusin. It's the aorist active indicative, third person singular form of the verb mesituo, which you'll see in the printed form also. And the noun form of this word is mesites, or mesites, found in Hebrews 8.6, Hebrews 9.15, Hebrews 12.24, and also notably in 1 Timothy 2.5, where the scripture says there is one God and one mediator, mesites, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the mediating word of God. Our vocation in imitation of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and in a graced participation with him is mediation. So there is only one mediator between God and man, but we are in that mediator. And therefore God allows us a vocation of mediation in a graced participation with Jesus Christ. The vocation of human beings in general, and why human beings were created, is that of mediation between the creator and the creation. Now, it's true that humanity is a part of creation. We ought to have what some are calling, and rightly so, cosmic humility and realize that humanity is part of the overall creation. We aren't all of it. We are part of it. And God is redeeming not just humanity, but all of creation. It requires cosmic humility on our part. Universal apocatastasis, universal restoration, is that of which we are only apart. So the vocation of human beings in general is that of mediation between the creator and the creation, but it's at the same time true that humanity is a part of creation, but it is human beings who through the fulfillment of the promises of God become the first, the first partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4. Consequently, human beings, especially those who have become regenerated, or born from above, are the first partakers of the divine nature and the first of a harvest of a universal kind, in James 1.18. Eventually, all of created reality will be a partaker of the divine nature because eventually God will be all in all. Until then... Humanity, though part of creation, has the vocation of mediation between the creator and the creation. For this reason, the whole of the creation groans in anticipation while waiting for the apocalypse or the apocalyptic manifestation of the sons of God in Romans 8.19. 
That is, the apocalypse of the sons of God is the manifestation of humanity completed in its vocation of mediation, a completion that only comes with humanity's glorification. That is, with the conformity of all of humanity into the image of God's Son, the only mediator between God and humanity. The mediation of the sons of God with creation is evident from the prophetic vision of the transformation of the world as desert, the present evil age and the world of this time, the present time or time period of this world is a world as a desert. And the last two verses in Deutero-Isaiah are sort of like the revelation of the Bible called Deutero-Isaiah. The mediation of the sons of God with creation becomes evident in the prophetic vision of the transformation of the world as desert in these last verses of Deutero-Isaiah that goes from Isaiah 40, verse 1, all the way through Isaiah 55, verse 13. There the prophet, in these last two verses of Deutero-Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 12 to 13, the prophet deploys the prophetic polysyndeton, or the use of many ands, ands, A-N-D-S. There are seven ecstatic prophetic ands in these two verses. And that reminds us of Revelation, where polysyndeton is used throughout. It's used by men who are prophets, who are reporting a vision, have a viz rep instead of a sit rep. They are reporting their vision with ecstasy and joy and therefore the use of many ands. So I translated all these seven ands in my translation rather than skipping over them. And so Isaiah 55, 12 to 13 reads this way, For you will come out with gladness and be taught with joy, and the mountains and hills will leap up to welcome you with happiness, and all the trees of the field will applaud with their branches. And instead of the briar, a cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle shall come up a myrtle. And it shall be to the Lord for an everlasting sign. That's the word semion aeonion, speaking of words for forever. An everlasting sign. And it, meaning the transformed world, will not be eclipsed. That's a vision of the eternized new creation, future world, made for the complete joy in which all of creation welcomes the apocalypse of the sons of God. You will go out with gladness, and the mountains and hills will leap up to welcome you with happiness. And all the trees of the field will applaud or clap with their branches. That is a picture of Romans 8:19 in fulfillment. All creation welcoming the apocalyptic manifestation of the sons of God, humanity as the true ecologists. The word ecology, incidentally, comes from oikos for house, logos for word. The house of God is the universe, and the caretakers of the house are the sons of God, the true ecologists. And all creation receives the apocalypse of the sons of God, because they are 
the liberators. God liberates all creation so that it experiences the glorious liberty, the glorious freedom of children at play in the fields of God. A wonderful picture of the future. Again, the vision that Isaiah closes in the Deutero-Isaiah is that of the eternized new creation, eternized in life, eternized in joy, sharing the joy of the Lord. Future world made for complete joy in which all of creation welcomes the apocalypse of the sons of God and shares in the glorious freedom of the children of God and the indescribable and glorious joy of Jesus himself, which is his joy in the beatific vision, the vision of the Father. When all of humanity is completely conformed into the image of God's Son, then all of humanity will be mediators between God and the rest of creation, including angels. For this reason, humanity will judge angels, and that means mediate between God, the judge of all, and the angels. Until all of humanity is completed in that vocation, the church of the firstborn, as the church is called, or as the regenerate part of humanity is called in Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, the church of the firstborn, united to Christ through the gift of faith, for now mediates between God and the rest of humanity who are yet without faith and yet without the assurance of the hoped-for things that are guaranteed by the oath-fortified promises of God. And that's Genesis 22:17 and Isaiah 45:23 for reference, as well as the oath-fortified oracle of God, the Father to his Son. The Lord swore an oath and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the nature of of Melchizedek. Faith is the assured conviction of yet unseen, hoped-for things, things vouchsafed and guaranteed by the veracity of God and things described in God's word. No one else is the mediator, mesites, between God and mankind, only the man Christ Jesus. Our vocation of mediation is carried out in union with him and is performed in the manifestation of the life of Jesus in our mortal bodies by death working in us so that life may work in others and by petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings being made for all human beings, including kings and all those in positions of authority. 2 Corinthians 4, 11 to 12, and 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 are the reference verses for my two last sentences. There is no other mediator, mesites, between God and all of humanity besides the man Christ Jesus. We who are in union with him and act in participative imitation of him are fulfilling the vocation of mediation. As First Peter says, we are a holy priesthood. First Peter says that, whose task is to, quote, offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First Peter 2.5. Every priest 
must have something to offer. Hebrews 8.3 We, a priesthood, have spiritual sacrifices to offer that include our bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. Those spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ are include petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all human beings. 1 Peter, 1, 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. Those sacrifices that we offer can mean or include the continual sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. How much time do we spend producing the fruit of our lips in cursing, in complaining, in slandering, in heresies, in criticisms of others, in whisperings and backbitings. And how much is the fruit of our lips praise, a sacrifice of praise? The lips, the fruit of lips, the fruit of our lips. In the Hebrew text of Hosea 14.3, it says, instead of bulls, we will pay the offering of our lips. Praise from our lips is a sacrifice that's acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Speaking highly of the things of God, speaking highly of God, being thankful. No wonder the scripture says, God is in heaven and you're on earth, so let your words on earth be few. Few doesn't mean that you don't say much at all through the course of your life. It means that what you say is chosen, selected, carefully chosen to be edifying, to be ministering of grace, to be manifesting the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be expressive of praise, to be expressive of thanksgiving to God. Enter into his courts with praise. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It's he that has made us and not we ourselves. So, instead of bulls, we pay the offering of our lips, says Hosea 14.3 in the Hebrew text. Lips that acknowledge his name, says Hebrews 13.15. Another sacrifice that we offer is doing good and sharing with others, says Hebrews 13.16a. As Hebrews 13.16b says... God is pleased with such sacrifices. Revelation 1.6 says that Jesus Christ made us to be a kingdom of priests to God and his Father. This is in fulfillment of God's promise to Israel in Exodus 19.6. You will be my kingdom of priests. Basileon Hieratuma. You'll see that in print. Consider the phrase, therefore, kingdom of priests. Basileon Hieratuma. 1 Peter 2.9 echoes the phrase from Exodus 19.6. God promises in Exodus 19.6. He fulfills that promise according to 1 Peter 2.9. But you are 
a royal priesthood, he said. You are a royal priesthood. Another way of saying a kingdom of priests. We also travel on the king's highway. And the year 2022, I know it's only October, but the year 2022, I'm almost inclined to name it the year of the king's highway. 2021 was the year of the great king, and it will always be the year of the great king, don't get me wrong, but 2022 will be the year of the great king's highway. That's the road we travel on. It's a, it's a paved road. It's a living road. It's a living highway. And the royal priesthood travels on it. Now, Peter never mentions the name Melchizedek, who was both a king and a priest. However, Hebrews actually gives an explanation as to how Israel, that is, the Israel of God, or eschatological Israel can be called a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood because Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek who was also a king. We'll be finding that out and ironing that out in Hebrews 7 very soon as well as another time in Hebrews 6.20. Jesus is an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We are a royal priesthood because we are in him who is a king and a priest like Melchizedek. All who are in Christ Jesus, therefore, are kings and priests because Jesus is an archpriest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We are in him who is the great archpriest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We are in him who is the great king. In him we are priests and kings. We are a royal priesthood. He has washed us from our sins by his own blood. He has made us clean by the word that he has spoken to us. Therefore, we are forever redeemed by his blood, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. We've become God's kingdom of priests with the vocation of mediation. We are in him who is the only mediator between God and humankind, and who is the mediator of the everlasting new covenant. We are in him who has justified us by his own blood and saved us from the wrath that would have been against us had we not received redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Had there not been an expiation, propitiation for the sins of the world, had there not been the satisfaction that only the death of the cross endured by Jesus has brought about. In fact, there are a multitude of correspondences between Hebrews and 1 Peter. I mentioned that early on in our study. It is a phenomenon, in fact, of New Testament study. 
In his magisterial commentary on Hebrews, Harold W. Attridge showed many of those connections. And from those many correspondences, I concluded, and I, I counted about 40, but there's many more than that if you begin to multiply the use of words and phrases, etc. From these many correspondences between 1 Peter and Hebrews, I concluded that no other book or document of the Bible has more of a kinship to Hebrews than 1 Peter. Other correspondences between Hebrews and 1 Peter include the significant correspondence between Hebrews 9.26b and 1 Peter 1.20. Consider Hebrews 9.26, which I think is in many ways the central pronouncement of the gospel. It, it says this in its totality. Neither was it necessary for him, that is Christ, if you go back to 924, he's the subject of the sentence. Neither was it necessary for Christ to suffer many times since the creation of the universe. The foundation of the world means the creation of the universe. But now once at the completion of the ages, he, Christ, has appeared for the removal of sins by the sacrifice of himself. If you notice that, the creation of the universe is speaking of the universality of his redemptive work, whereas the completion of the ages speaks of the eternality of it. But neither was it necessary for him to suffer many times since the creation of the universe, but now once at the completion of the ages, he, and I even translate that as we're going to find out again and again, the juncture of the ages, he, Christ, has appeared for the removal of sins by the sacrifice of himself. Now, compare that or let that be correlated with 1 Peter 1.20. He, again, Christ is the subject, if you confer with verse 19, was foreknown indeed before the creation of the universe. Please notice that before the foundation of the world or before the creation of the universe, and was revealed in these last times for you. Revealed in these last times for you. So let me read those two back to back again. Hebrews 9.26, Neither was it necessary for Christ to suffer many times since the creation of the universe, but now once at the completion of the ages, he, Christ, has appeared for the removal of sins. He has appeared for the removal of sins by the sacrifice of himself. 1 Peter 1.20, He, Christ, was foreknown indeed before the creation of the universe and was revealed in these last times for you. In these last times... In 1 Peter 1.20b, also chimes with God speaking with finality in a son in these last days, in Hebrews 1.2. Another notable correlation between 1 Peter and Hebrews is the correspondence or the correlation between 1 Peter 3.18 and Hebrews 7.27, 10.12, and 10.12, that is. Consider... This is my translation, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once and for all. Greek word is hapax there. You'll see that in print. A key word in Hebrews, even though it's found centrally only once here. But it's found also in Romans 6.10. It's found also in several places in Hebrews with, sometimes with the prefix 
EPH or EPI added to it, so it would be FHAPX. For Christ has suffered once and for all for sins, the righteous one in behalf of the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God, having died in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. Please note, that's really the central verse of First Peter. Christ suffered once and for all, hapex, for sins. The righteous one on behalf of the unrighteous. The unrighteous happens to be all of humanity. There is none righteous, no, not one in all of humanity, but there's only one righteous one, being Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, of course. So once again, let me read that verse. For Christ also suffered once and for all for sins, the righteous one on behalf of the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God, having died in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. Now compare that with Hebrews 7.27. He, that's Jesus, if you make the reference from 7.23, he, Jesus, has no need to offer sacrifices every day as those Levitical archpriests do first for their own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He did this, meaning offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people, not his own, of course, once and for all, epaphax, E-P-H-A-P-A-X, epaphax, when he offered up himself. So there's a great correlation between 1 Peter 3.18 and Hebrews 7.27, as there is a great correlation between Hebrews 9.26 and 1 Peter 1.20, as there is also a correlation between Hebrews 9.26 and 3.18 of 1 Peter. And so when Jesus offered up himself, it was not for his own sins, like the Levitical priest had to make offering after offering after offering every day, every year, for their own sins first, and then for the sins of the people. He, Jesus, has no need to offer sacrifices every day as those Levitical archpriests do, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. He did this, meaning he offered one sacrifice for the sins of the people once and for all when he offered up himself. When Jesus offered up himself, it was not for his own sins. He had no sins. He offered up himself for the sins of the unrighteous, which is all the rest of humanity. And in doing so, he became sin. He didn't offer up a sacrifice for his sins. He offered up a sacrifice of himself in which he became sin so that all the unrighteous would be made the righteousness of God by and in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you haven't noticed, there's lots of correspondences between Paul's writings and Hebrews, between John's writings and Hebrews, between Peter's writings and Hebrews. Hebrews 9.28, how about this one? says, so also Christ, having been offered once, hapax, as in 1 Peter 3.18, to bear the sins of many. We know that many equals all if we go to Paul in 5.18 and 19 of Romans or in Matthew 20.28 20, and Mark 10.45 compared with 1 Timothy 2.6. We know that many equals all of humanity. So Christ, having been offered once, hapax, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. 
not to deal with sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, I love the connection between Hebrews 9.28 and Romans 8 because it says in Romans 8.19-23 that all creation is waiting for him. Do you think all creation knows it's waiting for him? Does a tree know it's waiting for him? Does a cow know it's waiting for him? Does the animal creation know it's waiting for him? No, but it is waiting for him. It's anticipating him. So those who are waiting for Christ to come in his second advent includes people who don't even know they're waiting for him. But they are. All of humanity is waiting for him, the living and the dead. So when Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin he already did that once in his first appearing but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him so the second appearance of Christ when he brings salvation and that means he brings salvation to all of creation over the course of all of its times. When he brings salvation, corresponds to the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, as it's called in 1 Peter 1.7, when the tested and approved faith of Christians will be commended. Your faith will be commended, especially if it's tested and remains through the testing in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The unbelief of people will be also reproved at that coming and made to be yield to faith. It'll be like Thomas. Thomas, now that you've seen, you believe. And he didn't say, Thomas, you didn't believe, and so now you see and you must go to hell. He said, Thomas, you've seen and now you believe. And blessed are those who see, who don't see and believe. So there's going to be kind of a mass uh, example of that when he comes. Those who have been raised from the dead who have not believed will be reproved for their unbelief and their unbelief will yield to faith. And that's when every knee bows, every tongue acknowledges in faith that Jesus is Yahweh and when there is universal worship of him and that kicks off the universal new creation. But add to the mix of correlations with 1 Peter 3.18, Hebrews 10.10. Hebrews 10.10 says, it is in keeping with God's will. And that will has been explained as God's universally saving will his eternally saving will. It is in keeping with God's saving will that we have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That again is the Greek word epapax, which means once and for all. That's also used in Hebrews 7.27. It's used in Romans 6.10. And it's synonym, hapax, in 1 Peter 3.18. So there is more correspondences between 1 Peter and Hebrews than from any other book in Hebrews. And finally, in closing, there's Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12. But when this one, Christ, had offered one sacrifice for sins, one is mian, M-I-A-N, meaning one and without repetition, sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right 
side of God. That's where we find him in the book of Hebrews. Time would fail us to list the dozens, and I mean there are dozens, plural, of other correlations between these two documents, First Peter and Hebrews. But a study of the multitude associations of First Peter with Hebrews would certainly prove to be rich and fruitful, to say the very least. It would be a good six-month to one-year study of a pastor if you wanted to teach his congregation, all of those connections. So, Father, we thank you for those connections that we have seen between First Peter and Hebrews, and they all center around the son of your love and the price that he paid to secure the liberation of creation, the sacrifice that he made to cause the restoration of all things, the reconciliation of everything in the heavens and on earth, And we look forward to that future when everything will be summed up and brought under the headship of Jesus Christ. Until then, Father, thank you for the vocation of mediation and that you have made us ambassadors of Christ and a royal priesthood. And we're grateful for that and will be until the day we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.